Um, so last, we've been in a series, Sacred Friends. We've been talking about the different aspects of longing for not just good secular relationships, but longing for sacred relationships, the, the kind of relationships that are rooted in Christ. And we're talking about what are the differences between sacred friendships and secular friendships. And last week, we hit a conflict. We looked at Paul and Barnabas, and they were certainly ministry partners, and they were sacred friends, yet they hit a conflict. And I said that was part one of conflict, and this Sunday we would do part two. And I was so excited because I felt like the Lord gave me this outline, and just sometimes the outline just comes, and it was there, and it was early, it was a Tuesday. And I was like, that is awesome. Yeah, Natalie's going to be really happy with me. I'm getting it in early. So I got the outline early. And then I was praying about it. I'm like, thank you, Lord, for giving me this outline so quickly. And then Wednesday morning, he said, yeah, I want you to preach that, but not this Sunday. <laughs> so... Uh, I was like, yeah, but are you sure? Because I was just thanking you for... So he, he put a different... So I apologize if you came, for those of you paying attention, for part two in conflict. We'll hit that later in the series, okay? Because it's a... Boy, it's a really good outline. I really like it. But there's been this relationship. We've been looking at the different relationships within Scripture. And this relationship, I knew I wanted to make it a part of the series and... And it's just been uh, striking me that this relationship that we're going to look at in the Old Testament, you can start looking now if you've brought your Bibles to 1 Samuel, that this sacred relationship, friendship, illustrates what I think to be an actual, a, a crucial part of sacred friendships. And it's, it's directly related to the, to the will of God. You know, I was, uh, I've been in, in ministry uh, for full-time ministry over 20 years. I don't know, haven't stopped to count the exact years. But, um, but I, for a long time, I had a lot of friends in ministry. I had a lot of co-workers in ministry. Um, uh, a lot of mentors, people that poured into my life, and uh, I've mentored others, but there was never someone that I felt was a sacred friend, a, a sacred ministry partner, uh, one that we were really uh, serving, and, and oftentimes, I, I've seen that in, in the lives of other folks where there's that sacred partner in ministry, and and there was a time that I really prayed a lot for that key partner in ministry. Uh, ministry can be a very lonely place, actually. Um, that's part of the ministry of Crossroads, right? So, you, so praying for that, that, that sacred person that would come alongside and serve. I was serving here at SEC a couple of years and the, uh, the son of the founding pastor, many of you know Ben Brooks, was kind of at a crossroads in his life and ministry, and he was serving a church plant up in Denver, but he was now transitioning out. He was looking for a job, and he and I began a conversation about him coming here. Now, 
it's very hard to, to replace a founding pastor, right? There's uh, difficulties and nuances and commitments there. So when you replace, especially someone who's been here uh, 20 years, so there's those challenges. So as I prayed about and thought about, do I really want the son of the founding pastor to come and serve as an associate pastor? And I had good friends in ministry that said, you're inviting trouble, Eric. That's not a good idea. And so I prayed just kind of with the assumption of a no. Lord, what do you think about Ben Brooks? Should he come? I mean, right, it might be some difficulty. And lo and behold, guess what I felt like the Lord said? I want him to come. I want him to be here. And I'm ashamed to say this now, but <clears throat> I said to Ben, listen, I'm not going to be able to mentor you in the kingdom of God. I, I literally said that. You, you got to pick it up on your own, Ben. And he's like, okay, got it. So Ben came, and almost right away, he became that sacred friend in ministry, that, that ministry partner that we were together um, that, that he, uh, he jumped into days of the kingdom. He learned the kingdom of God. He was all of a sudden, we're ministering shoulder to shoulder. We're working. He was challenging me in good ways. I was hopefully challenging him in, in good ways. He was, went with me to another church plant to share Jesus' big idea in the kingdom of God. It was this really neat dynamic. And I was saying, thank you, God, for the sacred partnership, the sacred ministry. A couple years ago, he comes to me and says, Eric, I feel like the Lord is prompting me to leave and start a church. And I said, Ben, I don't think that's the will of God for you. <laughs> you don't know how long I prayed for you to come here, right? And so we're at this moment of... God's will. And I, and I think the, the sacred dynamic of a friendship changes how a conversation like that goes. Because I knew it was not good for me for Ben to go. Right? I knew that it was not good for the work of the ministry here at SCC. Well, it, there's some ways that it's been really good. But I knew it was a step back. And by the way, it did not fit my plans. How that conversation goes should be radically different in sacred relationships, in relationships rooted in Christ as opposed to secular relationships where the will of God and the voice of God and the presence of God are not there. This morning, we're going to look at the sacred friendship between the, the prince of Israel. The first king, King Saul, had a son, Jonathan, and he was the prince. He would inherit the kingdom of Israel. All right, so he was a big deal in his time. And he meets this 
young, insignificant shepherd boy named David. In fact, we're going to skip the story that most of you know from Sunday school, David and Goliath, right? So um, if, if you recall from perhaps your felt board days, right, you've got Israel and you've got the Philistines, they're back and forth, and Goliath is this massive giant, and he's, he's throwing out these uh, accusations about how weak Israel is and how weak their God is, and he's going back and forth, but he's a giant, so no one wants to go out in the battlefield and meet him including Saul, including Jonathan, no one else. And then you've got this young, probably teenage shepherd boy that says, I'll bring it. And he steps on the field of battle, right, with stones, five smooth stones. He downs Goliath, right? Philistines take off. Israel, huge moment for them. And everybody is like, who is this teenager? What in the world is up with him? Including Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan's the prince. And we're going to start the story in, in Jonathan and David's relationship at uh, chapter 18. And look at just the first four verses. We just get a glimpse uh, of Jonathan sees David down Goliath. And there's this special moment, the catalyzing of this relationship, the sacred bond between the two of them. It says in 1 Samuel 18, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Actual literal translation is one in soul with David. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And in that day and age, covenants were common. They weren't just for marriages. They were how God chose to relate to us. He made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that covenant. Um, kings would relate to one another. They would make covenants with one another, and they would talk about loyalty and commitment and peace between the nations. So, so covenant was a way uh, of... Uh, uh, establishing a, a special relationship between two either people or people and their God, uh, uh, two kings. So Jonathan is so moved by who David is and David's faith, made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt, these physical representations of the covenant. He, he takes off his robe, his belt, his sword even, and gives, gives it to David. David probably didn't have anything to give back, maybe a couple of extra stones from Goliath, right? But he gives this meaningful, it's, this, it's an illustration, a physical representation of this covenant that they made. Two phrases that I think are really fascinating we're thinking about in those first four verses. 
Uh, one is they were one in spirit or one in soul. We, we do have an idea of uh, kindred spirits or soulmates. Often in our context, we talk about mostly uh, people who will get married, right? And we'll say, oh, I found my soulmate. That you don't, you don't usually say that about friendship. Sometimes we say that about kindred spirits, right? Or, or soulmates. It, this has no connotations of, of marriage or sexuality whatsoever. None of that. This is highlighting a sacred friendship. And what I would argue is that a, a kindred spirit is, is perhaps the, the deepest soul friendship that you can have, right? So you can have a lot. I think I have a lot of um, uh, friends that are sacred friends, that are journeying with me. Many of you are, are here in this room. I've got sacred friends that are in this room. I've always felt like I've had one kindred spirit, my sister, Right? We, we see a lot. We understand a lot. Right? She, uh, her faith, she lives out her faith really similar to mine. She challenges me in ways that is really, really annoying. But I know it's right. right? So we back and forth. And I think not only David and Jonathan were um, sacred friends, but there was this dynamic of kindred spirits um, that is there. The other phrase that's fascinating to me is Jonathan loved him, David, as himself. Literal translation, loved his soul as himself. Does that sound like a, a foreshadowing of anything in the New Testament? What do you think? The second most important commandment. First is Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's the second one? As yourself. There's this dynamic of love which, which illustrates right, the love of God. We're not supposed to love people. Remember our very first week of sacred friendships is we don't love people as how we think we, they deserve to be loved. That's the secular way. The sacred way is we love people based on how God has loved us. There's a flow, that first commandment. We love God because he's poured out his love for us. And then the second commandment flows right from that, that love, that dynamic from God in us, and then it flows. Jonathan and David illustrates that sacred friendship principle. Beautiful covenant that is made. Now, the, the friendship carries on. If you have your Bibles open, just kind of look at Verse uh, chapter 19, my heading has Saul tries to kill David, right? Not very good. Uh, David is very successful on the field. People are singing his praises. David happens to be anointed king, the next king, which is not good with Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. David, Jonathan helps David Rescues David, creates peace between Saul and David. They're all good. Then Saul begins to get jealous again. And he wants to kill David again, right? His best military leader. And, and, Saul, and David 
connects with Jonathan. Look at um, chapter 20, verse 12, I'm going to read. And, And David is trying to say to Jonathan, hey, your dad is at it again. And there's a discernment process. And Jonathan is going, no, I I don't think so. And David's like, yes. Yes, it's true. Chapter 20, verse 12. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. He says, I will test him. I'll figure this out. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, talking about himself in third person. If I do not let you know and send you away in peace, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Interesting statement here. But... Show me unfailing kindness. This is Jonathan to David. Like the Lord's kindness. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about the Hebrew word chesed, the kindness of the Father. They had this. Do you know what Hebrew word is used in this chapter? The same one. He's saying, as you've experienced the chesed, the kindness of Father, Would you never let that go, David, for me and my family? May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies. Jonathan is fully aware that he could be talking about his father from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made yet another covenant with the house of David, probably reiterating the original covenant. May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. You see this in this moment of, so it's kind of conflict, part two, but not really. But they're in conflict. They're, they're wrestling. The, the covenant is happening. They've made this covenant, and yet you've got the key player in their lives, Saul, and he wants to kill David, and it stresses their relationship. It stresses the commitment, the loyalty, the love, and Jonathan has to respond. How how is he going to, is he going to side with his father, or is he going to honor the sacred friendship that he has with David? Now, the other thing that's fascinating is that Jonathan understands full well that he's supposed to inherit the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of Israel. And David is his biggest challenger to that. David could upset this line of kings that he's supposed to be in. In fact, that's why Saul is so upset because Jonathan is not fighting for his own kingdom. Look at uh, verse, verse 30. 
where Jonathan is sounding out his father. And it says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Thanks, Dad. I don't know if you should really talk about Mom that way, but don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you. As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he, David, must die. He is saying, what are you doing? You're an idiot. This is, we're talking about your reign, your rule, your kingdom. Why? It's the question that I asked. Why would Jonathan? Why would he say... Not say, Dad, you're right. I'll take them out myself. Why not? I think the simple answer is this. Because Jonathan's faith was derived by the will of God. That he was not committed to his own kingdom and his own will, the way that he saw life unfolding, his plans, his purposes, his rule and reign. But he wanted to be in line with the will of God, the ways of God. In fact, in an amazing way, we talk so much about David's faith. And David had this beautiful, incredible faith, right? But here, this is a beautiful picture of Jonathan's faith. Jonathan was not that secular friend. He was that sacred friend. I think it's incredible to look at this idea of self-will versus God's will. This idea that that a good secular friend will help you live the dreams that you have. A good secular friend will say, what's on your heart? What's the gifts? Who do you want to be? I was just at a daughter's graduation. It was a wonderful, it was a beautiful event, right? So just a a word of of mild criticism, right? So it's just a, a blessing. And it happens every graduation. Right, you have commencement speakers, and you have that. And what do they mostly say at every graduation? This is your moment. You become who you want to be. In fact, the, the phrase was, now you get to create yourself. That was there. Did you hear that? Create yourself. What's wrong with that? We, we have a creator who has plans and purposes for us, right? We, we, has, we have someone who knit us together in our mother's womb. We have this, this, this father, this Abba, who knows us and loves us and has a plan for us and is, is in inviting us to discover who we've, he's created us to be, who Jesus died on the cross for us to be. That's not the message in the world, is it? The message in the world is what? 
Be who you want to be. Create who you want to Pull back just a moment. We have a creator. In fact, Jesus is this beautiful model for us that Jesus models choosing God's will daily for us. There was a moment in his ministry where the disciples got on the discussion of food and Jesus spiritualizes the discussion and they miss it over their head. Dull moment for the disciples, right? But Jesus says this. He says, this is from John 4, 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. What a statement. He's saying, this is my sustenance. This is where I I get an energy and life is that I am pursuing the will of God. Think of the, the moment of Garden of Gethsemane. Where, where he's wrestling, he knows he's at the cross and he's wrestling with the Father. It says, going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Help God, help, I don't want to do it. And then he prays, yet not as I will but as you will. How Jesus the Son has a different will than God the Father. Mystery, no idea, I don't know. But he models choosing God's will before his own. And think of the effect that this would have on relationships. Another incredible moment in Jesus' life was when he's ministering, he's teaching, he's healing, and his mother and brothers come out, and there's such a huge crowd, they can't get to him, so they send word, and they're like, hey, Jesus, your your family is out waiting to speak to you. And, And the culturally appropriate thing to do, right, there's a culture that really honors family, would for him to, you know, finish the ministry and then go and attend to his family. He actually does not do that. You know what he does? We're told, says, um, he replied to him, who is my mother and who is my brothers? I wonder if the messenger would have been, I just told you they're outside. Of the, right? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my brothers and mothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see Jesus is exampling, is modeling for us this shift in this life and focus and it affects our relationship. Here's my core question that this leads me. What would have you done in Jonathan's shoes? If you knew that your kingdom was at stake, if you knew that David was the guy who was going to take all the the power and authority and the rule and reign that you were going to inherit, would have you made the call to choose God's will over your own? Let's get more practical with that question. Whose kingdom are you serving today? 
whose will is at the forefront of your mind today? Who's driving? What's driving your decisions today? Is it your will, your agenda, or is it God's? I have a confession for you. I struggle with this every day. Every day. I would love to say I'm a shining example of all I preach. I'm just not. I'm just not. I get up every morning, and if there is a throne in my, the center of my soul and my heart, every morning I get up and I sit right in the middle. And I think about my to-do list. I think about what I want to accomplish. I think about my agenda. I look on my phone and what's on for the docket for today. What do I have to get done? Am I the only egocentric, selfish person that can, can you relate, right? So every morning, no matter how good of a day I've had previously, every morning I get up and I feel it bent right there. It's, it's all about me, as it should be. I keep, I keep waiting for my wife to figure this out, right? She's, she's not quite there yet. And yet what a sacred, what kingdom life does is it helps us get off the throne of our own lives and say, you know, I've got a creator. I've got a father who, I didn't knit myself together. I, I don't, I, I didn't give myself these gifts and abilities. I've cooperated with some of them. And it's inviting Christ as the throne room, and saying, God, okay, that, that prayer, I'm, I'm going to give you one little thing that has helped me, that helps me every day. We, we prayed it this morning, right? In the Lord's Prayer, there's a key line. It happens right away. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy... Do you think Jesus wanted us just to pray that and then go off and serve our own will? I'm guessing no. I don't think so. I think he wants us to reorient, to transform our thinking, our lives, our soul, so we get our backsides off our own stools and get Jesus here. And say, today, God, today, Jesus, help me get off the throne and pay attention. Because I know if I am facing conflict or difficulties or struggles, and if I'm sitting here, I'm going to make a bad decision. I'm going to make a decision based on my wants and my desires. And sometimes it's going to be compromised. And I'm not going to do the right thing. But if Jesus is there, and I'm struggling with a decision, and I'm praying, what's, what's your will in this relationship? What's your will in this work circumstance? What's your will? Then, 10 out of 10 times, 
We're going to make that right decision because we're oriented on what God is doing. Now, I think that relates to um, discerning and obeying. When we have the mindset, then we get to say, we, we say, okay, God, what is your will? And how do we obey? Discerning is that process. Listen to what Paul says about the will of God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What's the pattern of the world? Selfishness, egocentric, create your own. Who do you want to be? Paul says, don't conform. Don't just blindly go, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> right? Be transformed. Allow your minds be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able as we experience that transformation process, as we seek the, the will of God daily, as we say, God, I want it your way and your kingdom, your work, then, then in that process, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. There is a testing. There is a discernment. There is a process. And that's where I think sacred friends becomes so crucial is if we actually say to our sacred friends, hey, I, I need help. I, 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 I'm not sure what God's will is. I, I'm struggling to hear his voice. That's why I was so appreciative when Ben came to me. He didn't say, Eric, I'm planting a church. He said, Eric, I'm having these stirrings in my heart and soul. Would you help me discern? Yeah, no, that's not from Jesus. No, of course I didn't say that. In fact, I know that was in Ben's blood. That's, he came and I knew good chance that that conversation was going to come. I was part of his calling and his will, how God knit him together, God's plans and purposes for him. And see, I want to be a sacred friend where even when it is personally not advantageous to me, even, even when someone has a call and it's going to take the Carters away from us, I get to go, hey, I, praise God, God, they're living God's call and purposes and plans in their lives. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had sacred friends in our lives that weren't just connected to us with their own, what they get out of the relationship? But we're really asking the question, what's God's plans? What's God's purposes for your life? I'm convinced that, that most of us don't ask the question. We don't go, most of us don't go to the sacred friends and say, help me discern. Most of us have decided and we just go to the sacred friends that we think will tell us 
the answer that we want to hear. Am I the only egocentric, selfish, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's true obedience is even in the discernment process. And let me just leave you with this. Not only discernment is a part of the process, but obedience is crucial. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See how incredibly important obedience is. One last text from 1 Samuel. You don't have to look it up. I'll just read it to you. Jonathan says this to David. This is in chapter 23. It says, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. Declaration. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. See how Jonathan began to see the will of God. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, reaffirmed their covenant again. Jonathan went home, but David remained in Horesh. What, what I'm saying there is, did Saul recognize what God was doing in his own kingdom? Well, Jonathan said, he sees it, he knows it. Was he obey? Did he obey it? No. He was standing against the will of God. He's recognizing the will of God, but then didn't obey it. He was outside of that flow. What Jonathan incredibly does is he recognizes, he discerns the will of God, he's about the will of God, and then he obeys. And now he's not working against God like his father. He's working with the Lord in his life. How incredible if we had a sacred community that asked these two questions. These are the discernment questions from, they're very simple from 3DM. What's God doing? And what are you going to do about it? Wouldn't that be awesome if we had sacred friendships that we just asked those questions again and again and again? What do you think? What's God doing? And what are you going to do about it? And if we had beautiful relationships enough that we could say, I, I don't think God's doing that. I know you want that. I know you're hurt, but that's not God's voice. I don't think so. How would that change our relationships if we kept centering God's will in our lives on the throne? Let's pray.
So the phrase, as I was praying for the service throughout the week, this weekend, saying, this day, what does it look like today to put God's will at the center of your life? Would you just imagine for a moment, what does that look like? We're so driven by our own will, are we not? Our own purposes. What would it look like today? We said, Jesus, your kingdom, I choose it over my kingdom. I'm going to be like Jonathan. I want to choose. and I, Lord, I want my voice in others' lives to be about your kingdom, not theirs, not mine. What would that look like today? So, Father, teach us the sacred life where our lives are not filled with our own agenda and lofty thoughts and aspirations and purposes. Would you help us to be a different people, a particular people, making decisions, relating to one another and in sacred ways and in holy ways and your ways. Would you teach us not to, to live for ourselves as the way of the world, but to live for you. we sing this final song, would you stand with the, the prayer uh, partners come forward? I was thinking also, if there's a particular thing in your heart that you don't know the will of God and you want someone to listen on your behalf, would you come and, and let them pray for you? Let them listen to the Holy Spirit and what God is saying. Or maybe you know what God is calling you to do and you just need strength. You need strength to do and live God's will. Would you be prayed for with these folks?